Well, we are going to take a little bit of time now to talk about birds and bird counting and taking a look at species and birds that you might not even know are out there. But people who are tuned into this, well, they know exactly uh, where they are and probably even how many there are. Joining me on the line is uh, Dr. John Reynolds, a professor of aquatic ecology and conservation at SFU, SFU, also the chair of the Endangered Wildlife in Endangered Wildlife in Canada. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, this was an article. It was in the, the Tri-City News about uh, the counting of birds and the, the Audubon Christmas bird count and what you uh, saw while you were on a marathon. What exactly did you see? <laughs> well, the two were not done at the same time. No. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yes, the marathon is a story that everybody loves to repeat. Uh, it was a few years ago I ran the Vancouver Marathon. And uh, coincidentally, it's it's 42 kilometers long. And coincidentally, I saw or heard 42 species uh, while I was running it. But um, but that just sort of added to my notoriety as uh, as being interested in natural history around the city. Um, but on the Christmas count, this was on uh, the fourth of of uh, January. Um, I was part of a, a, a large group of people organized um, by the local Burke Mountain naturalists in the Tri Cities and. Uh, and also our counterparts across in Pitt Meadows, and uh, a, a total, uh, at least in the Tri Cities area, a total of 105 people went out and uh, managed to find 74 species in one day. And all of those results, the number of species and individual birds, those are all compiled centrally by the Audubon Christmas Bird Count people, and then it contributes to our understanding of bird trends uh, across North America. And are, are people, are they finding new species or finding where different species of birds, existing species happen to be or if they're changing their habits? It's both. Uh, the The hope is always to find a species of bird that has not been seen um, on that Christmas count uh, late, you know, previously. And it's one of the things that birders are very keen on is finding rare species. But most of it is finding out new places where they may be and also how many there are. So if you know, although it's a single snapshot of one day, if you do it over uh, multiple years, which is what happens, then over time you get a very good idea of how bird trends are doing, especially when you amalgamate the results of of the of almost 2,000 of these Christmas counts that are done all over North America. And and people that, that do these counts, it seems like like people are very dedicated to doing this and to learning this information and finding out. Why is it so important, do you think, for people like yourself and others to do this? There are two reasons. Uh, first, it's a lot of fun. And you don't have to be an expert to join one of these Christmas counts. They are held, there are several of them around the, uh, around the lower mainland of Vancouver and, in fact, and right across the country. There are hundreds. So anybody can go out and do one. Usually they'll pair people up with people who are uh, inexperienced with experienced people. So it is just a lot of fun to go out. It's like a game to see how many species, how many birds you can find. But the reason that also motivates people is they it's a way that anybody can contribute to our understanding of what's happening with population trends. For example, Anna's hummingbirds have become uh, quite common now um, in um, in southwestern B.C., and uh, people increasingly are putting out hummingbird feeders for them. And we know exactly what's happening to their population trends over time we, because of these Christmas bird counts. We had the most 
uh, on in December, we had the most that we've ever had on the Christmas count. Their numbers are just going up and up and up every year. And now we can track that. We can link it to climate change, for example, as our winters become milder. And so it's nice to participate in the, the in figure out these stories. Hmm. And, and do we know then, is that why we're seeing more hummingbirds? Because it's warmer or it's a more inviting climate for them? That is certainly part of the, the reason, yes. I think it's also because people have started to realize that you can, in fact, see this species of hummingbird, the Anna's hummingbird, in the winter. They don't migrate, which is crazy when you think about the size of this bird and how much sugary fuel it needs every day to survive. But they can, they can because they can hang on, word has spread. And basically the message is that if you put a, a hummingbird feeder out, um, they will come. And and this is a, a trend that we've really seen rising. I didn't see the first one in my yard until maybe six years ago. And now I have two or three that visit every day. And that's even anecdotally I've heard from people or even on social media. You, you tend to see more pictures of hummingbirds. Yes, I, I think that's true. That That's, uh, of course, the rise of digital photography has probably helped contribute to that too. But yes, absolutely. People are... It's just astounding to see these these little flying uh, jewels able to uh, survive the winter at all. And, you know, when we had a cold snap uh, a couple of weeks ago with all that snow, in fact, some of them did get into trouble. There were a number of reports to the animal rescue people of hummingbirds uh, that, that were, were struggling. And so, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, went to extra efforts to keep their, I mean, their feeders unfrozen or swap them out overnight, that sort of thing, to keep the birds going. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about, so birds in general, does the, does doing this type of count or watching them in different areas of uh, the Fraser Valley, Metro Vancouver, does it tell us about pollution or do we learn about trends, uh, about perhaps things, other things other than, uh, say, a snowfall that might be harming them? Yes, we do. We learn about uh, the, main, the main issue affecting birds and, in fact, um, all wildlife is habitat loss and pollution is of course a, that well, one form of degradation but the big one is habitat loss and you simply only have to look at the rate at which we are converting um, semi-wild habitats into urban or industrial habitats to see that happening and so the christmas bird counts and other forms of citizen science are helping us to find out not only what we're losing but also in some cases what we're gaining because the overall trend in North America has has clearly been downward in the overall number of birds that are with us. But there are some amazing success stories, and we know about these because of things like Christmas bird counts. So, for example, the um, <clears throat> uh, city of Port Coquitlam a few years ago built an amazing sanctuary for all forms of wildlife, not just birds, uh, called Blakeburn Lagoons. And before that, it was basically an industrial waste site. And they uh, took lots of um, uh, input from their citizens. What would they like to do with this site? And they, they said, let's make a habitat that looks as natural as possible. They dug the ponds, figured out the hydrology. And already there have been uh, something like 143 species of birds recorded there. And it only opened about two years ago. Hmm. 
And, and and in watching that, then I, I guess are birds kind of a predictor, or do they tell us they, they they can point to bigger things? I would imagine as far as what's happening with our environment. Yes, that's definitely true. They uh, because they're so conspicuous, and and people who are really into it can identify them by their calls. We're very good at sensing birds. It's much easier than a lot of other species. And you're right. So, for example, in the lower mainland uh, and and lower Fraser Valley, we've lost about 90% of our original wetlands due to drainage um, since the turn of the last century. And, you know, we we can see, you know, that just makes you wonder, imagine before people were counting birds, how many there more there must have been. And, uh, but, but then when you do something right, like for example, protecting, um, colony farm in, um, in Coquitlam and, and Port Coquitlam and, or building a habitat for them, uh, then you see the results immediately too. They, they show you that you were getting it right. All right. Well, it's a very interesting research and good to see uh, so many people interested and uh, in getting involved in this. We will have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, my pleasure, Joe. Okay, so you're not going to give me an answer to that. I'm, I'm asking what you would do, like if you're actually in power. Oh, I think ICBC should be open to competition. That's the whole idea, so that people have a choice. If ICBC can compete in that marketplace, then we might still have ICBC. But this idea that somehow you're going to privatize a company that loses a billion dollars a year, who's going to buy that? All right. That was Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson speaking uh, with Mike Smith here on CKNW. And yes, you heard that correctly. In power. I think ICBC should be open to competition. ICBC should be open to competition. competition. That is what he said to Mike Smith. So let's bring in Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She is joining me on the line now. Good morning to you. Good morning. That was a nice clip to hear, wasn't it? <laughs> so that's something that you and your group have been calling for. What was your reaction when you heard I, the Liberal leader say that? We've been trying to get clarity from him uh, as a party as well and a party leader for more than a year. So I was very happy to hear Mike Smith uh, pull that out of him <laughs> during that interview. And what I think it is, is I think it's just such a complicated issue. Sometimes uh, politicians don't want to be so exactly clear because it is complicated and we understand why. But I think for drivers who are just paying through the nose, they want to hear some clarity. So that was really great to hear that coming from uh, Andrew Wilkinson this week. And do you think it is, I mean, I think if you ask people today about ICBC, people that are drivers and pay for insurance, if you ask them today compared to five, ten years ago, the frustration level is much higher. Uh, people have seen their rates go up and are, 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 I think the opinion may have changed for people who might have supported it in the past are now looking at this going, well, the system, maybe it's not working. Maybe we do need to look at some other options. Yes, we have noticed a change. Uh, whenever we ask our supporters uh, within the CTF what they think, uh, there's a very clear case being made there for opening up the competition uh, so people can shop around and try to save some money. And then also just speaking personally, I was born and raised in BC. I got my driver's license as soon as I possibly could. Um, I've been insured here for years and I went away, lived away for a long time, came back here and my goodness, the sticker shock. It was just breathtaking how much more expensive it was to insure our vehicle here a regular old mom mobile compared to ontario which has competition for insurance nova scotia which has competition for insurance and then when i said well what other options do i have and they just blinked at me and said well nothing and i said you guys still only have icbc here that's it 
They said, yep, that's it. Here's your, here's your cost. Pay it. So that's amazing for a lot of people who are used to being able to pick and choose their auto insurance and try to save some dough. And I think that's the general feeling that's kind of growing here in BC, where people are frustrated being locked into these really high rates. They, they don't like being trapped. Uh, no, and, and it, every time I think we have this conversation, I do get email from people saying, if you ask when you're renewing your insurance, if you at least make the inquiry about the optional insurance mm-hmm. and go the private route on that, people have said they've saved four or $500 a year. Yes. So just to be clear with people listening, you're right. Some people do save quite a bit of money on the optional. But what we're talking about is for the mandatory basic level of insurance. And in that level, you can't choose. You must only stick with ICBC. It's one-stop shopping. And what I've heard also is some folks say that they can't get great rates on optional. I personally try too. I tried, obviously, to shop around for my optional as well. And it turns out that it wasn't any cheaper. And I've heard some insurance people explain that to me and said, why can I not get a screaming hot deal on my optional? And they've said that's because ICBC uh, has all the data. And as we know, insurance is always based on risks and demographics. And if these other companies that do have some optional insurance offered here in BC are working in the dark, they have no access to any data, then they they don't have a really good way of offering that competitive rate. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's really yeah, it's not a guarantee, but they're nope. they're they're yeah, they're different stories from people, uh, different people that are doing that. Uh, what do you say to the concern or the criticism that some might say oh, it's fine if we open up ICBC to competition, then the private insurers are going to take all the great drivers, the bad drivers are going to be left with ICBC. That's going to lead to their rates going up. That's a really good question, and I would answer it uh, twofold and with a disclaimer. I'm not an insurance lady, so I'm, I'm the tax lady, but I'm also up for competition all the time. We always want more of a free market. And I've had some insurance rates going up, and frankly, insurance itself as an industry is becoming more expensive almost across the board. But if you look at Alberta where they can shop around for lower rates, they spend way less per year. So on average, we're over $1,800 per person per year here at, uh, in BC. Whereas in Alberta, it's around 42% cheaper uh, in Alberta. So that's just a staggering amount. I've heard of the argument when they say, oh, well, if we open it up to competition and we allow people to pick and choose who they insure and where we get, it, where we get our insurance, There'll be these horrible, terrible drivers in the street. Ability to find insurance. Chris, your phone is breaking up. Oh, there you are. All right, Chris, we're going to have to try and get you back on the line. Let's uh, disconnect and reconnect uh, with Chris Sims. We're chatting with Chris Sims, who is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I do want to hear from our listeners on this as well, because it is a topic that affects 
a lot of people. And we've heard some horror stories from people insuring their kids who, granted, are fairly new drivers, but don't have a record of crashes, haven't caused any accidents, but because they are new drivers are deemed high risk and add somebody like that to your insurance. We've seen insurance rates go up in some cases by thousands of dollars. So I am curious after hearing Andrew Wilkinson say that to Mike Smith, say that, yes, absolutely, ICBC should be open to competition. What do you think about that? If you want to give me a call on the buzz line, please do. That's 604-331-BUZZ. And I'll share some of those comments a bit later on in the program. Uh, We've reconnected with Chris. Chris, sorry about that. Your phone was just cutting out a little bit. Uh, What do you say, though, to the idea that, uh, again, if ICBC is open up to competition, Mm -hmm. then it's it's going to, A, skim off or the private companies will skim off the great drivers. But we're also hearing from people in other provinces when we do talk about this, people saying, yeah, it was cheaper when I was in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Ontario, but the product wasn't as good. That's a great question. And sorry about the phones. It is raining cats and dogs here in the Fraser Valley. So it's interfering with the phone systems all day, uh, all night rather. And so I was in Ontario, just anecdotally, I was in Ontario and I was in media talk radio for about 10 straight years. Never once did we have a phone call from somebody saying, I'm wandering around, I can't get insurance, I can't get to work because I can't get insured because I'm a bad driver. Uh, and I asked insurance people about that, and they said they take turns. So if there's a, a really uh, high-risk driver sometimes, or even a high-risk homeowner, for example, and they, they need insurance, uh, insurance companies will then take turns insuring that person. Yes, they'll pay more because they're a higher risk. That's how insurance works. But generally speaking, uh, your average good driver pays a lot less for their auto insurance. And it's a good point that you raise also with with the product you get back. And the way I've heard that explained as well is that the payouts wind up being about the same, uh, but the the ceilings on them when you first sign up look higher here in B.C. So say you get into an accident, your ceiling looks higher for how much you get back here in B.C. compared to maybe another province. But in reality, the actual payouts after everything is settled are around the same amount. So the product you are getting back is about the same. Right. And that was brought up this week, too. And I I think David E.B. mentioned that as well, that the the cap of the payout Mm -hmm. is is lower in those other uh, provinces. But as you said, if you look at the the actual numbers of the payouts, they are very similar. And then also, how about just letting us pick? (laughs) We're adults. How about you look over your policy? Does this work for you? Is this enough for you? Yes, no, great. That's how we should be allowed to pick it. It shouldn't be the government just telling us what we're going to have and how much we're going to pay. No, and I think a lot of people uh, would agree. What do you think? One more uh, question. What do you think about this idea of the fairness uh, officer being brought in? We always want more transparency. And so I'm hesitant to jump on them and say this isn't a good idea. If they can make it better and more clear for people to understand anything that the government does for us or to us, that's great. Uh, We just don't want this becoming uh, pointlessly expensive. We don't want massive cost overruns. We don't want this uh, being stuffed with political people. Um, But if it truly provides clarity and it helps people with ICBC, awesome. Uh, But at the end of the day, we do think that the answer to dousing the dumpster fire is opening it up to competition. So at least we have a choice. And again, I always compare it to the grocery store. Imagine on your big Saturday grocery shop, you have no other stores to go to but the government store. Like what kind of competition, what kind of prices do you think you'd have? No flyers, no coupons, no price matching, nothing. 
Like, we have terrible service. And so, unfortunately, I think that's what British Columbians are dealing with right now. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Hopefully, uh, you are okay in the monsoons that are coming down <laughs> in the Fraser Valley. Chris Sims, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Well, a petition that started in Alberta that opposes banning military-style rifles without first having debate on the issue has received more than 100,000 signatures, and it hasn't been up for that long. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. It's become, I think, the most signed e-petition that we've seen in Canadian history. And joining me on the line to talk about that is Glenn Motts, who is a member of Parliament, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Medicine Hat, Cardston Warner. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, good morning, Jill, and uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, what do you think about the fact that so many people uh, that support more than 130,000 signatures already uh, on this petition? Well, I mean, it's fantastic. We're uh, we're almost at 143,000 this morning. We've still got a couple of weeks to go. And, and I'm, I mean, it's always pleased to help Canadians voice their concerns. I think that's, you know, that's the importance of, of having a petition, and especially when you're dealing with such a deeply flawed piece of policy that these, uh, you know, the Liberals are trying to do on their misguided approach to firearms. But what's even more unfortunate is that, you know, these tens of thousands of Canadians, you know, they're feeling ignored and maligned and even demonized by these Liberals to the extent that this petition is even necessary. So is your concern more with what's been proposed by the Liberal government as far as uh, changing rules when it comes to firearms or the fact that it's being done without debate? Well, a couple things, Jill. I think, first of all, uh, an order in council uh, on an issue that is this uh, important and this, you know, has the the potential to be this divisive, um, you know, it bypasses the opportunity for Canadians to have a full debate on the merits of the policy, and um, you know, the community that I'm hearing about all across this country believe that, uh, given the scope of of the you know proposal and the ban and its costs, it, it needs to be openly debated. That's what a democracy does. If there's things that we have to fix and improve in our current system, let's have a fact-based, evidence-supported conversation in public about it. Debate the merits. Bring what experts together. And let's move forward with something that is actually going to improve public safety, not just window dressing that that uh, gives the impression to those who you know may, may be ill-informed on the matter, but actually makes a difference and targets criminals, not law-abiding. Uh, you know, gun-owning Canadians. Well, and that's certainly been one of the criticisms as well, in that by by talking about a ban, by saying you're going to give municipalities and individual cities the power to ban handguns if they choose, uh, it's not going after gang members, it's not going after criminals. What it's doing is penalizing law-abiding citizens. Very true. I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, a ban on handguns uh, and, you know, the policing community across this country have been very vocal on this. Uh, and said, you know, a, a handgun ban is going to have zero impact on the criminals, the gangs who use these types of firearms. It will not improve public safety. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, something the government, the federal government refuses to do. They're going to let the municipalities, what, institute a bylaw? The criminals already don't follow, you know, the criminal code. So they're going to really be scared of a bylaw. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. The other thing that, that this petition is talking about, Jill, is, the term military-style assault rifle. Well, it's got, you know, it, it's ill-defined. 
there is no such legal definition in this country. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not good. It's not a good use of the terms to make any sound policy on. Um, it's politically more motivated, not policy orientated. And it doesn't have any rational basis on how they're going to do it. I mean, if they're talking military-grade firearms, those type of firearms that can uh, fire multiple rounds with one squeeze of the trigger or have large-capacity magazines, those type of firearms are already prohibited in this country, and they have been for decades, Jill. Right. So, um, you know, are they now going to target semi-automatic hunting rifles? Is that the, that, is that the scope of this? We don't know. We don't know what the liberals are going to do. Uh, do you think then that phrase, because I found that phrase odd as well, it's not like anybody would ever walk into a store and say, I'd like to purchase a military-style assault rifle, please. Uh, is that phrase, do you think, put out there to scare people? Well, you know, actually, it is. To me, it's a deliberate attempt by these liberals to try and get support from uh, Canadians who may be ill-informed on the matter and what gun laws we already have in this country and the strict rules that that uh, you know those uh, you know those of us Canadians who are pal and our pal owners uh, that we follow already, and uh, it makes the impression that well you know you can go into any gun store and buy these these uh, you know these scary you know military rifles that are designed to kill people. No, you can't. They're prohibited in this country. And I, I mean, I've always said, and the whole gun community says, you know what? Let's classify and focus on on uh, the functionality, what a gun can do more than what they look like. And, and there's some, I mean, my grandsons have 22, you know, rifles that look scary, but it's a 22. It's a single shot 22. So let's, let's base this, um, you know, let's base it on facts. Let's, let's, let's look at what the evidence shows us of, of uh, where we have gaps in our system. And let's, let's fix those. Let's not, Let's not pretend we're actually going to make a difference for public safety because this will not. I mean, Jill, you know, our borders are porous, and especially when it comes to the illegal smuggling of firearms. I mean, Chief Saunders in Toronto has recently come out and said that over 80% of the crime guns they seize in that city are not taken from Canadian gun owners and stolen and whatever else and, and straw purchased. They're smuggled illegally in from the United States, and there are already illegal fire, you know, illegal firearms in this country. So that's the problem. Let's focus on where the problem lies, because I mean, the the facts. Stats Canada supports for this, and in, in their and uh, in, in their uh, reports that the Canadian firearm owning community in Canada is multiple times less likely to commit a criminal act or be violent than the normal Canadian. Right. Think about that. I mean, the normal Canadian is, it's a rarity for them to commit a crime. So then you multiply that again by multiple factors, and then you have the gun-owning community who consider it an incredible privilege to own a firearm. They're not going to jeopardize that. And, you know, we get vetted every single day to see whether we have committed any criminal offenses. And if we do... We lose our pal and our pals, and we lose our firearms. Uh, you mentioned, 
So you mentioned straw purchases, which I, which I think is an interesting point as well. When we're talking about misinformation or or putting information out there uh, that that is meant to scare people, because that has been put out there as well, uh, saying that guns that are used in crimes are stolen, often stolen from law abiding from from law abiding gun owners. But when you actually look at that statement, there's nothing to back that up. There's nothing that suggests that. And like you said, somebody who's gone through the the course and has gone through all of the steps it takes to own a handgun it isn't going to be leaving their handguns out to be stolen and if they did have them stolen over and over again that would create a red flag well it certainly would Joe. that's a great point i mean we have there's a couple of factors there first we all know that that in order to qualify to have a pal or an r pal or to get a to get a license um to, to own a firearm and to have possession of a firearm you have to go through some pretty incredible vigor to make that happen now um, what we have as a gap in many areas is our, our you know, our, fi- our chief firearms offices in many of the, our uh, provinces across the country are understaffed, and um, people are not honest on their forms. So if you have somebody who comes into a gun shop and buys 25 handguns, well, my thinking is, why wouldn't we want the, the CFO to be knocking on their door the next morning and saying, why are you buying 25 handguns? Mm-hmm. And the straw purchases means that somebody who is connected to a criminal group or somebody with criminal ties that isn't honest on their form, fills it out and, um, you know, uh, pretends to be able to, you know, to be a law-abiding Canadian and then purchases a firearm and then sells them to the criminal element. Well, of course, nobody in the law and in the gun community wants those things to happen and the police need resources to shut them down because... In many cities across the country, that does happen. And how do we stop it? We stop it by ensuring that the resources are in place for those who actually go through and, uh, and vet uh, you know, the applications, uh, do their due diligence to make sure that there is no gaps in the system and, and, and that there are flags that exist that if somebody r- erases, as you call it, a red flag, you know, the alarm bell should go off. Well, don't just document it. Go check on it. Uh, just before I let you go, the petition itself is open until February 15th. What happens at that point? Well, I mean, e-petition 2341, I'm encouraging everybody to go on and, and sign up if they haven't already. And, and make sure you check your junk mail um, because the confirmation email is important to confirm when you get it back. And sometimes it ends up in there. So after this, um, you know, like you said, it is the most, you know, we're at... I don't know what, almost 143, I think I said this morning or so far. Um, we, will, we will determine uh, the most opportune time to present that. I'm, I'm honored to be able to sponsor it from one of my constituents from Out of Medicine Hat, Brad Mansidiak, who, who initiated it. And we will present it to the government at a time that's most appropriate for this conversation. And exactly when that'll be, it'll depend on when the government decides to put this information forward All or right. their order and counsel forward. All right, so we will be uh, watching for that. Uh, Glenn Motts, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill, and I appreciate your interest in this issue. As you likely heard yesterday, there is now an intermunicipal business license for ride hailing, at least a tentative one, that will be voted on by the various municipalities and cities in Metro Vancouver. And... 
It has the support of Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, who, as you know, was very much opposed to Uber operating in Surrey. Bylaw officers in that city were issuing tickets of up to $500 when they were finding Uber drivers that were dropping off or picking up in the city of Surrey. So does this mean that it is smooth sailing for ride sharing from this point on? Well, not necessarily. There are still the votes that need to take place for the business license, but it does seem like it has the support of the mayors needed to support the system. It's going to be administered, at least starting off, in Vancouver. And joining me on the line is Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on the announcement and what we have as a framework right now for this inter-municipal license? Well, I think it's critical that we do have an inter-municipal license because that's how people travel across boundaries. And one of the biggest challenges, speaking from a Vancouver perspective, we have is getting people home, for example, when they're in the Granville Entertainment District at night and they're traveling home and they live in a municipality outside of Vancouver. So it was a, it was a, a sort of an impediment to getting ride-hailing up and running, similar to the provincial um, requirement for a Class 4 if you were to go ahead and have a patchwork of regulations where um, you'd have to apply for a license in every municipality. So this is a good step forward. I was also the only councillor in Vancouver that voted against Vancouver going it alone um, in October um, and implementing our own license program because I thought it was important that we have a, a, an intermunicipal one. And it did seem, I mean, what seems a bit odd, I think, to people is that Vancouver went ahead and took that step. But, and now we're dealing with everybody getting together and being on the same page, whereas we probably should have been doing that months ago. Yeah, and not to use a transportation analogy or an old one, but it's cart and horse um, in my mind. And it, it really should have, that should have been the conversation that happened earlier. We knew that, um, that ride-hailing was coming. Um, I think what's, and, and I think, I don't think it made sense for Vancouver to go first. Um, I think what is happening here in the bigger picture is you've got typical bureaucracies that um, are used to taking care of their own municipalities and new technology is forcing um, municipalities to think outside the box um, because technology isn't limited to boundaries and operates differently. So this is a situation and I think we're going to have more and more of them as we have new technologies develop that impact how people get around and how they live their daily lives. So it's, uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to use this as a model for, for future opportunities. Uh, There's been a lot of talk as well of this uh, level playing field or making it so this new technology isn't extremely negative on the existing taxi industry. Uh, Does it seem, though, it seems to me rather than bringing in more regulation and more red tape, why aren't we focusing more on deregulating the taxi industry? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think that's the part of the conversation that has been missing. It is true that taxis faced much higher insurance costs um, and there's some inequity there from that perspective but a lot of the sort of the difference between the current taxi sort of setup and ride hailing is that the taxis particularly the Vancouver taxi company were advocating for keeping those geographic boundaries um, and that's not how people travel that's not how ride hailing works so I actually think that that was the conversation that needed to happen was around evolving the taxi industry but what we had was an industry that was really resistant to change in technology. And so, you know, if you think about things like travel agents, um, who books through a travel agent? Now some people do. Um, but travel's changed dramatically and people book online um, and we evolve. And what you have is an industry that's been really litigious and, and really resistant to change. Well, and it also seems to get its way in that you make a, a, an excellent point with the travel industry. There's certainly other industries that technology has come in and has not wiped it out, but has certainly had an impact on it. Why? Why do we treat the taxi industry so differently and treat it in that it shouldn't be an industry that's negatively impacted by technology? 
It's, it's a great question. I, and I actually think that you, you have better ability to shape and manage change when you embrace it and think about how you want to utilize it. Um, as opposed to trying to stop it from coming. It's sort of like trying to stop the tide from rolling in in the ocean. And you know that that's going to happen. It happens twice a day. Um, it's a force of nature, and technology is a force of nature. So you can't stop this. You can't change it, but you can manage it so that you have really good street management in your city. You think about congestion and pickup zones and think about how how can taxis evolve that they can remain a viable business and a viable alternative for people. And and I, and I think that you know I would have liked to have seen a lot more of that. Uh, so what happens now then with we have the tentative uh, intermunicipal uh, business license. Uh, it now goes to the various councils for votes. So what happens to ride sharing in the meantime? Well, in, in the meantime, um, I think that Vancouver will continue to issue these. I think that vote, those votes are going to happen really quickly. So all of the municipalities and the individual councils, I think, are slating to put it on their February agendas. Most of them are going to commit, I think, to trying to get that vote happening very quickly. Um, in the meantime, Vancouver has been issuing licenses um, since October and will continue to do that. And they're easily transferable to the municipal license and the fees will be applied towards that if somebody has acquired one in the meantime. So I expect those votes will happen quite quickly. And in places like Burnaby, where their license, I think, was a lot more expensive, around $500, or places like Surrey that don't have the license, and McCallum saying he absolutely, he supports the the framework for the intermunicipal, but he doesn't, but they don't have a separate licensing system. In places like that, does that mean that, that Uber or Lyft, well, Lyft isn't in Surrey, but does that mean that Uber shouldn't be operating there in the meantime until the the vote happens? No, they're they're entitled to operate under the provincial guidelines. They're they're given the ability to operate. What the province did with the legislation is give the municipalities the additional ability to issue business licenses for their area, uh, which they can do. But whether a municipality chooses to do that or not, the ride hailing companies, if they've been issued that provincial right to operate, they have the ability to do that. Um, Surrey has, um, you know, the Surrey mayor has indicated that he's supportive of this, as has the mayor of Burnaby. Um, so I think those, that's a good move. Burnaby was one municipality that set the inertial fees really high at the same level as taxis. And I, I thought that was an impediment. That's similar to putting the class four in place. I think that was a, an intended deterrent, in my opinion, not only to sort of speak to and support the taxi industry, but also to sort of keep uh, to keep ride hailing suppressed, quite honestly. So I think that the lower fee will help. Um, but I think those municipalities are coming on board now and hopefully they'll have um, full votes at their council to support this um, intermunicipal model. Uh, in the meantime as well, so this deals with the license, uh, the, the fee for the license, the fee for the vehicle that uh, the ride sharing companies have to pay. Uh, what about the accessibility fee? Because that certainly has been a question as well about accessible rides and making sure people with disabilities also have access to this. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's my biggest concern moving forward. I think there's, there's two that, that cities really have to zero in and focus on. And one is, you know, managing traffic and so things like passenger um, pickup drop-off zones in busy areas and making sure that it's integrated into the, all the different transportation um, modes that are happening in the city. But the accessibility piece is significant, and I think that that's the, the priority that needs to happen now working with the province as to how do you ensure that you have accessible vehicles um, on the road for people that need them. Um, and them being used as pawns in the discussion is not okay. Um, so really, that's that needs to be part of the conversation. That's how are part of you know either pickup and drop off fees or some of the license fees used in a pool um, that they can support ensuring that we have the accessible vehicles on the roads. Uh, do you think Uber and Lyft should have to provide accessible vehicles, or is it enough that the thirty cent per ride fee goes into other ways of finding accessible rides? Um, I, I think it's both, and I think there's different ways to accomplish that. Um, I think the fact that 
um, the fee per vehicle fee is is going to be zero um, for wheelchair accessible vehicles. So there's an incentive intended there as opposed to $150 for a regular vehicle. Um, so I think that's that's one mechanism is to actually encourage um, people to utilize those vehicles and get them into the into the accessibility pool. Um, and then the other one is is looking at a fee and making sure that there's a stream that goes towards offsetting some of those costs. All right. So, well, we'll see. Like you said, the votes will likely happen uh, sooner rather than later. We'll see what happens next. Uh, Councillor uh, Kirby Young, thank you so much for your time again. No worries. Thanks for having me. Have a great day.